We're going to crack on with our preaching series in Luke this morning, and uh, Tessa, 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 where are you? Tessa's going to come and read our passage. While we're setting that up, with the mic over there, I'll just remind you that Jim's excellent talk of last week is available on the website, and uh, so are all our talks, and I recommend you catch up on any gaps. Um, If you want a title for today's talk, the best I have to offer are what I think are just a great moment of humor in this passage for today, which is, Jesus was hungry. (laughs) But uh, I do want that to govern everything that we think about and and, and what I talk about today. Uh, Jesus really was hungry. Jim wrestled last week with the idea that he was fully God and fully human. In this passage, I think it's Jesus' humanity that comes into the foreground. And with chapter 3 having just ended with the family tree of Jesus, ending uh, with the first man in the garden, Adam, the contrast that is being established here is how Jesus succeeds where Adam had first failed. So uh, let's turn to our passage now, and Tess is going to read that for us. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when he had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I want. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus replied to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he brought him into Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will lift you up so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been stated, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. That's great. Thank you, Tessa. very helpfully pointed out in the scriptures that after 40 days of not eating anything, Jesus was hungry. I have three main points this morning, and for your delight, they are not only alliterative, but uh, they're also double-barreled, all three of them. Uh, So whether or not you give an F, I'm going to give you six. (laughs) My first point is about faithfulness and forgetfulness. My second point is about formation and fortification. And my third is about fasting and feasting. First, faithfulness and forgetfulness. In this exchange between Jesus and the devil, the words of Scripture are weaponized on both sides. This ought to be a cautionary tale for us that we can't just quote the Bible and then drop the mic. It's clearly possible to take God's words and use them to justify a great many things. And that kind of use is abuse. As a rule of thumb, and remember that snakes don't have thumbs, a text should be sensitive to its context. 
When the devil quotes scripture, he surgically extracts the words from their context and forces them to mean whatever he wants them to mean. But when Jesus quotes scripture, they're relevant to his own situation, but they haven't been stripped of their original meaning, the meaning they have always had. And so to skip ahead to my main observation here, the texts that Jesus quotes are witnesses to God's faithfulness, and their context also warns against forgetfulness. Forgetfulness of how God has been faithful in the past, and so will therefore be faithful to his promises in the future. But let's look at this in some detail, starting with the devil and the way he quotes scripture. He doesn't try that first of all, but after Jesus has a go, he says uh, in verse 6, to you I will give all this authority and glory, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. And although the devil doesn't directly quote scripture here, he is making allusions and uh, these are allusions to key passages which have been understood to reference uh, forward to the Messiah Jesus. The first is Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And the second is Daniel, chapter 7, verse 14. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So the devil is appropriating these texts to himself. He's saying, ask of me, and I will give you this inheritance because it's been given to me. And there's an extent to which the devil is actually telling the truth here. The devil does have power on the earth for a limited time, but that power can and has been, and will be revoked. And so the devil might be telling part of the truth, but he's not being honest. He sticks some terms and conditions on the end, and I imagine them kind of flying out of his mouth, like the the, the things that advertisers are forced to do on the TV and radio. Terms and conditions apply. You have to worship only me, and once the seal is broken, you will be given no refunds. But when we look at the context of these verses that he's alluding to, we see something very different, and we don't need to look far. So in Psalm 2, we just need to go back one verse, and we hear this in Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so on, into the quote that he uses. These first words sound remarkably similar to what Jesus has just heard God say about him as he was being baptized. You are my beloved son. And then it is God who says, ask of me and I will give you this inheritance. So Jesus knows this context and he knows the words belong to God and are addressed to him. And so he's not about to accept the devil as some kind of middleman. It might be an easier way to what he knows God is already going to give him. But ultimately, because God's authority is supreme and the devil's authority is derivative, that's a dead end. Later, the devil makes a direct quotation uh, using Psalm 91, 
which is a song about God's divine protection, which surely God will afford his beloved son, right? But he creates a new context for these verses when he says, if you're the son of God, cast yourself down from here. He's going to protect you, right? So he's manipulating the text by creating a new context for it. And there's no evidence of the psalmist artificially creating some scenario that's going to force God's hand. The psalmist is already surrounded by war and disease. I think that's enough trouble to be getting on with without having to create more. So Jesus understands this, he sees it, and he skips over the trap that is being set for him. Let's now look at the quotations from Jesus. Interestingly, all three of his responses come from the same place. They come from the book of Deuteronomy. There, Moses narrates the story of God's people right up to the brink of entering into the promised land after 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness. Now, there's an obvious circumstantial connection with Jesus' situation where he's just spent 40 days wandering around in the wilderness and he's on the brink of bringing his kingdom into the world. But Jesus isn't just concerned about the circumstances of these passages. He's also concerned with their spiritual lessons. So to the first temptation, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy uh, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and here's the context for that verse. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, and so on. That sounds fun. <laughs> and so on. And, and uh, he, sorry, the, the end of verse 3 is where he says, um, da, 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 da. one does not live by bread alone. Remember what the Lord has done. And to the second temptation, Jesus jumps back a couple of chapters to chapter 6, but it's the same message. Take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord your God alone you shall fear. So the clear message of both of these passages is Moses saying, don't forget the ways that God has been faithful to you. Because when you forget, you'll then act as though you need to do for yourself what God has promised he's going to do for you. Jesus does remember, he doesn't forget, and this causes him instead to rely on God's faithfulness. And the third response comes from verse 16, just after this, that passage. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. What happened at Massa? There, the people in the wilderness were so thirsty that they complained to God about even having been brought out of slavery in the first place. Because of their new circumstances, they had forgotten just how bad it had been, and they start dictating new terms for their salvation to God. And so the thread that runs through all of these quotations that Jesus uses is just how easy and how dangerous it is to forget about God's faithfulness. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, when we're hungry and weak, wondering where God is, we're prone to forgetting that God has been faithful. And then we're prone to acting in a way that implies and assumes that he will not be faithful to us now, 
in our time of need. Forgetfulness and faithfulness. Jesus does not forget. And by remembering God's faithfulness, he refuses to take an easy way out. And this reminds me of one of my favorite passages from uh, John Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress. It says, Better, though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Better, though difficult, is the right way to go, than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. So with my second point, I'm going to look at how I think Jesus finds the strength to take this difficult road. This leads me to my uh, points about formation and fortification. In this passage that we're looking at today, I'm impressed not so much with what Jesus does, but more by what he refuses to do. In short, he refuses to take a shortcut. The devil offers him nothing other than what Jesus has every right to take. But for Jesus, the ends do not justify the means. He would rather lose those things than take them by way of self-service and compromise. The question I have is, what does that mean for us when we're tempted? How are we supposed to exercise such self-control in the face of temptation? Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. Well, we might say, well, of course he didn't sin. He was fully God, right? Isn't that what Jim taught us last week? Jesus was fully God, and the Gospels are full of, wow, Jesus is God moments. But I don't think this is one of those moments. I think this is one of those, wow, Jesus is human moments. Jesus was hungry. And I believe Jesus was demonstrating a reality that is available and attainable for all of us. We might be tempted and yet not sin. Sounds tempting, doesn't it? I believe that this depends on how we turn to God and relate to him and how we put ourselves in places of formation by him and build fortifications. I want to tell you briefly about an Ignatian spiritual principle. I've told you before, if you, if you let me preach, I'm either going to talk about Revelation or Ignatius or both, right? <laughs> I've been finding this uh, Ignatian principle more and more helpful as time goes on. Ignatius describes two major spiritual experiences that we all have, and we move through them as uh, like seasons in the year. He calls these experiences consolation and desolation. In times of consolation, we don't just know about God's love. We experience it. We are so on fire with God's love that praise just bubbles up and overflows. It's times where we feel great gratitude and joy. We're ready to be generous 
we have immense faith and abounding hope. And in consolation, we feel close to God, and we feel alive because of it. But by contrast, times of desolation are experiences of heaviness and darkness, sometimes of turmoil and madness, where we're assailed by doubt and we're bombarded by temptations, and we become mired in self-preoccupation. We're restless, anxious, and lonely, even in the company of others. We lose faith, we find it hard to love people, and we can't find hope. In desolation, we feel distant from God, and in extreme circumstances, we can even begin to despair of life itself. And the key here, Ignatius tells us, is discernment. We ask questions about where is God leading me in these circumstances? And where, by contrast, am I being deceived? We can be led by God in both consolation and in desolation, but we can also be deceived in both circumstances. And so Ignatius gives us advice as to the different kinds of behavior that are appropriate during times of consolation and during times of desolation. In consolation, we should respond like Joseph in Genesis when he's put in charge in Egypt after interpreting Pharaoh's dream. As there are seven years of bountiful harvest, he carefully makes and executes plans to prepare for the seven years of famine that he knows are coming. And in times of consolation, we too need to make wise decisions to order our lives in such a way that when desolation comes, and it will come, we're ready for it. That means that during times of consolation, we don't just enjoy the experience of God. We also use that time to establish regular disciplines of worship, prayer, study, and service with structures that work and structures that last. It's about making hay while the sun shines, but also storing it carefully for the winter. But during times of desolation, Ignatius advises us to lean on those structures that we've established during times of consolation. We keep up those disciplines of worship, prayer, study, service, even when or especially when we don't feel like it. We don't make major course changes in our lives during times of desolation because we're not in a good place to make big decisions. And although it seems harder to see it, what was true in times of consolation is still true in desolation. Old orders are good orders. In this wilderness scene, I believe we see Jesus in a time of desolation. I mean, he's literally in a desolate place. And the resilience that he exhibits is, I believe, the effect of having frequently sought solitude where he could be alone with God. He was so familiar with the presence of God and the word of God that however much experience might look and feel like God has abandoned him, and the loudest voice in his ears is that of the devil, He knows that to be contrary to the truth. He knows that God is with him and that he is faithful. 
And he didn't just happen to have a scroll of Deuteronomy on him while he was out in the wilderness. He lived in it so much that the word was inside him. It was his daily bread that sustained and nourished him so that when he was hungry, he knew where to turn and look for help. So in times of consolation, build and fill storehouses. And in times of desolation, go into the storehouse and eat. Jesus, in his hidden life with God, he established for himself practices and disciplines that would form him during times of consolation and fortify him for times of desolation. And if Jesus did it, so should we. And now to my last point, fasting and feasting. One of my, uh, I'm studying a master's uh, course at the moment, and one of my fellow students is a Catholic priest who I was chatting about uh, this weekend, and he reminded me that this passage that we're looking at today is traditionally preached at the beginning of Lent every year, this or other versions of it in the other Gospels. It is not yet Lent, but we're not far away from it. Today is actually a Sunday known as Septuagesima. Yeah. Thank you. Septuagesima begins a short period of preparation for Lent known as Shrovetide. Shrovetide runs until Shrove Tuesday, which we probably know better as Pancake Day. <laughs> Shrovetide is the traditional period of time where Christians would consider what we might fast from over the period of Lent. And Lent itself has its origin in this scene that we've been looking at today, where Jesus fasts for 40 days. So I propose that this Shrovetide, we use this time to discern what might we fast from. Jesus never actually commands us to fast, but he does actually express an assumption that we will fast as part of our devotion to God. So because of this, we should consider not whether we will fast, but what, when, and how. So this Shrovetide, let's have a think about what we might fast from, both over Lent, but also as maybe a regular practice throughout the year. Before I continue, I want to name the reality that many people suffer from a variety of conditions, from uh, eating disorders to very strict dietary requirements. If fasting of a certain kind would be injurious to your health, don't do it. We need to apply the excellent theological principle, this is not that. If fasting of a certain kind would be injurious to your health, that would be similar to Jesus jumping off the top of the temple. That's testing God. Although fasting can and maybe even should be food-related where possible, nothing of what I'm talking about here should be taken up against doctor's orders. And that's not capitulation to worldly wisdom. 
It's a refusal like Jesus to test God. So, disclaimers aside, let me say a few words on fasting. The only real reading I've done about fasting is from this book uh, called Celebration of Discipline uh, by Richard Foster. So I'm going to grab a couple of great bits of advice that he offers in here. He, he does offer great advice. He also describes in meticulous detail what it feels like to fast for 40 days. Um, I, when I, I read this just after I had become a Christian, and did I try fasting for 40 days? Yes. Um, did I last even one day? No. Um, <laughs> I, I recommend that with fasting, like every other spiritual discipline, we apply a good degree of self-knowledge. We learn what we can and what we can't do and what we're likely to be able to do. And we live within those reasonable expectations and we start slow. The first bit of advice he gives is that fasting must be centered on God. It must be God-initiated and God-ordained. It's not so that we can show off our piety. It's not so that we can lose weight. It's not to score points with God. It's worship. We fast as worship. We worship with fasting. Secondly, he says, you shouldn't be surprised if you don't like what surfaces in you as you fast. He says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. And if anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, or fear are within us, they will surface while fasting. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. I don't think when he wrote this, we'd coined the term hangry yet. But that's what he's talking about. At first, we will think that, but then we will just realize that we are just angry. And we can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. Hallelujah. So this is going to bring some stuff to the surface if you fast. It's worth it. Lastly, when we're fasting, we should also be feasting. Sundays in Lent don't count as part of the 40 days. Did you know that? But that's actually not what I mean. Um, what I do mean is that in a very real way, we should be fasting, we should be feasting while we are fasting. What do I mean by that? One day, when the disciples of Jesus brought him some lunch, he told them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Daily bread. He didn't say that bit. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Somehow, in the midst of fasting, Jesus is feasting on God. I don't think I would have been quite so profound in my response had I been there. I'd have been more like, so you're not going to eat that. But when Jesus is fasting, he is able to refuse a cheap bit of stone bread 
because he is instead being somehow miraculously sustained and nourished by God himself. So to fast is also an opportunity to feast on God himself, who meets us in our hunger and our thirst. I love how the Holy Spirit draws links and lines between the preaching and uh, the worship without any collusion. We've been singing, all who are thirsty, come and eat. I heard you rehearsing, this is my daily bread. Uh, it, it's, it's wonderful. The Lord wants us to experience his provision as we surrender to him with fasting. So to close, I want to just remind you of all the Fs I've given. <laughs> We've considered God's faithfulness and our tendency for forgetfulness. We've looked at how Jesus practiced spiritual disciplines that both formed him and fortified him. And we've considered how Jesus fasted and how he used those as opportunities to feast on God and his word. We're going to stand now, if you would, if you're able. And we're going to pray with and for one another. I invite you all to come forward and respond to whatever God might have been nudging you with, either in this talk or during the worship or at any point in the week leading up to today. Whatever you need from God, let's come and ask him. If you need to remember what you have forgotten of Jesus' faithfulness, Let's come and remind ourselves of his promises again. If you need help to establish practices of prayer and worship, of study and service during times of consolation that will serve you in times of desolation, so that you'll be able to resist the enemy. Come and ask him. And ask God for where he might be asking you to break hold of what is controlling you, entering into fasting so that you might feast on him. So let's pray, and then uh, you're welcome to just come forward as you feel led. I'm just going to read a prayer which is appropriate to Lent but is uh, therefore appropriate to this passage that we've just studied. Almighty God, whose Son, Jesus Christ, fasted 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted just as we are. 
yet is without sin. Give us grace to discipline ourselves in obedience to your spirit. And as you know our weakness, so may we know your power to save us. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.